Yeah, you don't want to reboot it in the wrong uh, when it really needs. In it. the meeting, have yeah. you been doing that? You know, snoozing and then suddenly it comes up in the wrong moment when you okay. Yes, it's counting down fifteen seconds, and you're like, oh, okay, I'm gonna do a hard exit on this meeting. <laughs> <laughs> no, it definitely happened during the meeting. Oh. Mm. It's always when you don't want it to happen, right? Then yeah. it happens. But yeah. I've it's been at like software updates coming. It feels like it has been kind of. Uh, It's you know raised the bar or or the tolerance the number of snoozes you can make are less nowadays. Yeah. Uh, now yeah. in my computer at least I think I have one snooze, yeah. and then you're like, okay, I might want to snooze now, but then I don't have I don't know when it comes up next time. You know how bad will it be? So it's kind of it's it's a bit bad to have one snooze. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> There's probably some AI algorithm who's controlling it, right? Uh, what is the maximum, optimum number of snows you should do? And it's counting down. Yeah. It's I, probably I two it. to stress you. Like you get one chance and then... Yeah, yeah it's like, it, 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 they say it's one, but it actually yeah. turns out you have another one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And for the audience, we say welcome to this episode of uh, Nerdy Consultants talking <laughs> about their computer issues. <laughs> <laughs> Tech issues. But uh, with that said, I think we're live. Aren't we? Yeah. Oh, perfect. Cool. Okay. Perfect. Thank you, Andrea. <laughs> so, um, Anders and uh, Henrik will not be able to make this podcast today. So I'm Per Osterman. And I will try to stand in for them and, and be uh, the host for this team that we have around the table here. Uh, we are all four people. And um, a little bit of the reason why I am here. Yeah, of course, I, I know Goran a little bit from before. And I'm... Uh, very much like to talk about this topic about the data analytics ai and what it can do for the companies i'm normally working with when i'm at accenture uh, i've been running what we call applied intelligence for 10 years and it has been interesting 10 years when it comes to uh, evolution of technology um, evolution of different types in technology but also maturity of uh, the clients we are working with in this area so i think we can do a lot of more things i think we just in the starting of this area and um, we will talk more about how ai can do good for society uh, in the next couple of hours so that would be a super interesting topic and with me i have andrea yeah uh, you can present yourself andrea definitely Um, so I'm Andrea Jusberg. I work uh, within Paris team as a uh, data and AI strategy consultant. I also lead our Nordic work on responsible AI, which is something that uh, lies really, really close to my heart and uh, something I think we'll be seeing more of over the coming months and the coming years, something that more and more companies will start to um, put a lot of investment into, but also a lot of efforts. So that's something I'm looking forward to speaking about more today. Mm. Cool. Uh, Jonas, would you like to say something about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, Jonas Widberg, also part of uh, Paris team, strategy manager within Applied Intelligence. But uh, yeah, my my background is more about like big data and finding out the the things you can do with big data. And that's what interests me, trying to get the right insights out of that data. And combining that to do good for society is perfect. So hopefully we'll discuss that more today. Mm. Thank you, Jonas. Peter? Yeah, uh, Peter Bowman. I um, am also part of the uh, Accenture Applied Intelligence team. So um, I've been uh, with Accenture for for a long time, but um, I uh, nowadays work mostly with data visualization um, and helping clients, you know, um, 
understand their data in in uh, efficient ways. Um, yeah, that's short about me. I know that you are completely dedicated to this area, and um, I think it, so. We are an extension team here. You realize uh, listening into this and. Normally we talk about um, clients, we talk about how we can help clients to become data driven and we have a, a big team behind us. But tonight we will talk about, you know, why we are in this field and why we're working with this and also what we think this can lead to, not from an Accenture point of view, but, you know, from what we are coming from and what we are working on. So what we think this area can actually do for society. Uh, and AI is based on data, right? Data is what you actually, AI will never become as good or bad as data it's provided with. Mm. And um, I would like to maybe ask you why you are interested in this and uh, how you came to this point. Sure. Who should I start with? Who wants to I, I can start um, yeah. because I, uh, yeah, but when I started at the university, I mean, big data was a big thing. And when we got out of the university, I kind of like to understand what you can do with all that data. And then I got into marketing and marketing is a lot about getting insights out of data and, and like promoting the right ad or whatever like that. But then, um, then AI came all come along and, and you can do a lot of like algorithm stuff on that. Um, and I got into conditional monitoring for industries. Uh, I think that's really interesting. Uh, and then you realize like you can combine all that data from different companies and so on. So, and, and from different areas mm. to great, uh, uh, create better insights on other insights on totally different things. But, uh, yeah, that's how I got into data and like find the interest for analytics. Andrea, maybe you. Yeah, maybe a little bit on the same track. Um, so I. I come from the business side originally. I studied economics. I studied finance. And um, we were when, when I studied, we were talking about externalities and how you account for, for your externalities. What is that? It's basically an economic term for uh, the negative impact that you have, um, that you want to account for uh, and have on your, on your balance sheet. Economists out there don't uh, don't prove me on that, but uh, <laughs> if I remember correctly, it's basically the definition. Um, but I was really frustrated because we weren't talking about the use of data or the use of digital. And at that point, I was really curious about the positive externalities, about how um, data and technology can help us improve our societies. I was really interested in like pol politics and and so on. Um, and I was really frustrated that we weren't really talking about when politicians were, were out, um, lobbying for votes or, or they were standing in uh, TV, live TV de debates and so on. No, no one was talking about data or digital or anything like that. Um, so I was really frustrated by that. Um, and then that interest kind of grew into also thinking about the negative externalities. So how can data, technology, AI, things like that also impact people in the wrong way if we do it, if we don't consider the negative impacts that can possibly occur. Um, so all of that like, oh, kind of led me to here. I, uh, I've done a lot of work in responsible AI before joining Accenture, um, worked with a lot of really cool companies and, and other types of organizations and really seen how how organizations are tackling these issues 
in practice, which is uh, it's something to admire. And um, you can also say that there's a lot of work to still be done. But it's a fairly new field, isn't it? I it mean, is. This has is. become very much uh, the, uh, the topic of the day yeah. uh, with all the regulations, of course, but also with the non-biased solutions. Isn't yeah. uh, AI actually, if you create the wrong solution, it is scaling up the problem extremely fast. Yeah. And that is making it also a bit dangerous, right? Definitely. And I think that's really important to keep in mind when we're talking about this, that it's, it is a new field. I mean, AI as a technology has been around for, for several decades, but AI ethics is something we've been discussing and, um, and, uh, researching quite, it, it started quite recently. Um, and it's definitely, it, it has definitely accelerated over the last, say, five years or so. Um, so it's safe to say that we're really in the, in the starting phases. Um, but, um, as you said, I mean, their regulators are now looking into this area. Um, so policymakers are, are becoming aware of, of, um, of this. Um, so it's, um, it's about time to, um, actually start doing things also. Mm. But, it, but it feels like it's uh, it's a uh, hyped field and yeah. you know more and more are talking about it and trying to address it but it's also interesting that you know other waves or hypes or whatever in the data field they have had you know uh, uh, somewhat uh, more of a solution to it like mm. an easy solution okay uh, you don't have capacity to analyze this data you need a big data solution mm. uh, so you, you pour some money here yeah. to uh, vendor x um we don't have a, a good way to analyze or visualize data you you get the data visualization tool and, mm. and pour money there and then you kind of magically think you have solved the problem you can debate that mm. but but this is for me at least there's no kind of obvious uh, you know easy fix of it. It's more of a, a more fundamental change in how we work and analyze data and, you know, how we, we ensure that we, yeah. that we address this and, and, and um, yeah, yeah, take definitely. care of it in the process. But also based the insights on, on data that we know is correct, because that could also be a problem when you start doing algorithms on data that might not be correct. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that's something we can, I mean, if we have two hours, we can deep dive on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but what about you? What about your, uh, your, why did you end up here and why do you do what you do? No, but I think, um, I, 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 my story is I, I came, um, I'm an engineer, um, and, um, I, um, came to know about AI and, and, um, machine learning quite long ago, almost 20 years ago, uh, in uni university in the US. And, uh, I was really fascinated uh, about neural networks and support vector machine was a kind of a hot topic back then and different computer vision solutions and things like that. So I was, uh, was learning that and actually helping a, a professor with some research there as well. And uh, felt like I've finally found, you know, something that really interested me. The previous years of the university has been kind of more, uh, yeah, okay, I'm most likely preparing for something else. But finally, I found something that was really, um, you know, fun and rewarding and, and also extremely challenging. Um, so I kind of had an idea that I wanted to work in that field. But then I, when I moved back to Sweden, I couldn't really find a 
any place in, in, uh, in Nordics, I would say, that had uh, at least outside academia, but almost not in academia either, uh, that had any positions or any work in the field. So I kind of uh, uh, tagged along on one of my, my buddies to complete some business studies. Uh, I applied for Accenture. Uh, I, I kind of became a management consultant and then realized that we had you know, a lot of uh, interesting data in our assignments with clients. And then suddenly I kind of found a niche uh, working with customer data and customer analytics. Uh, and at that time, this was a couple of years in my career at Accenture, I, uh, uh, we, we had this global initiative called Accenture Analytics. Uh, and I got involved in that. And then Per came into the picture and was the kind of appointed lead of, of um, the analytics practice in Nordics. And I was quick on uh, kind of applying or jumping on that ship. And um, yeah, I think that, that's my kind of background into it. The interesting part is, uh, so I have some, some kind of more technical background as well, but um, my kind of years as a management consultant, then I realized that, you know, communicating data and communicating insights is really something that Accenture has in the DNA. Uh, so I learned so much during my first uh, three years as a kind of analyst and consultant in different uh, high pace uh, projects. And for me, data visualization is kind of a hybrid field of that. You know, you have data and you need to understand how you analyze it and explore it. But then you have the kind of um, the front end of it or, uh, you know, the, the actual visualization is, is, you know, has a lot of the commonalities with how we present things and communicate things. So that's, that's kind of where I am combining these two legs of my career, I would say. Do you have a graph that you hit? Oh yeah, that you many. Should not use when communicating. Yeah, yeah, trigger warning. Yeah, no, but I, you know, people always kind of uh, look at my direction when someone shows a pie chart and, and laughs a bit like, <laughs> "Oh yeah, no, that's I shouldn't be allowed." And actually, uh, Pear actually was in a meeting presenting a three D pie chart, uh, and, and I was not in the meeting, but someone screened them, dumped that uh, slide and sent it to me. Paris showing a 3D pie chart. <laughs> you should <laughs> learn him. And I got a ping from you that the, uh, the, the pie chart police is here. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah so I don't know how to kind of handle that. No, the, it, so no pie charts? Not pie, 3D pie charts. No, not 3D pie, pie charts. Chart. Yeah, I guess that's, that's we can agree on. But, but pie chart has been kind of the punching bag of data visualization for, uh, for I don't know, 10 years. Um, and uh, yeah, 10 years ago, everybody was, uh, don't do pie chart, don't do pie chart. And at that time, I think it was, especially in business context, um, you know, so common that people just, yeah, I like the kind of roundness of it. We put it there. Does it tell you anything? It doesn't really help us. And, and I think we're a slightly different place right now, but. But I think, you know, there are settings where a pie chart actually works. It, it's kind of easy to understand, you know, but the, the things like if you have multiple categories and things like that, like, things like that it, it's, it's not really readable and useful. And they're like a bar, bar chart. Why not? <laughs> mm. 
But I think what you're saying, I mean, you've been teaching me about this pattern for a while, right? What is making a good visualization good and what is making a bad visualization bad, right? And I, I try to remember the pie short mm-hmm. to avoid it. But actually, the case you mentioned, it wasn't my pie short. No, no, I know, <laughs> I know, I know, Perry, I know, Perry. I inherited. But my wife is, is uh, actually uh, working a lot with annual reports and mm-hmm. creating annual reports. Mm-hmm. And I, I never seen so many pie shots like mm. in the annual reports. Mm-hmm. And I tell her, so it's contagious, <laughs> right? I tell her that you should never use a pie shot. Uh, because and she asked why. Yeah. I will ask her to call you, yeah, the okay, pie yeah. shot police, and then she will get to know about that. No, but, but I think, like, there are, like, um, I don't... I don't see myself as a very aesthetic person, in uh, like being good at designing things. Uh, I, I kind of stick to what I know. Um, I, I went to engineering and physics, which is maybe the least designy people ever. But um, um, my point is that uh, a lot of the kind of, um, I shouldn't call them rules, but the guidelines in the field, they have kind of research behind it, or there are as a, actually arguments why why is a, not, a pie short not a good idea uh, nine times out of ten. Mm. It so depends on what you want to show as well. Depends what you want to show. Um, but there's a saying by a guy called uh, Edward Tufte: uh, the only thing worse than a pie short is several pie shorts. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I agree with that. That's typically, but, but Hey, I, I showed a slide with five pie shorts last week, I think, but it actually were very clean. It was just like two, one number each pie short. Uh, That's great. Worked. Good example. So we heard about your stories, right? Uh, I can tell maybe a little bit of my, yeah. my story, why I'm here. So, uh, I'm a bit older than you. So I've been, I was around in the nineties really? as well. <laughs> I was around Looks in the nineties so, yeah. as well. And in the nineties, I was working in the, um, aerospace business. So I was spending my time in the nineties in the U S and in Europe, uh, working with, uh, with European space agency most of the time. And, uh, I, I, I actually was starting up together with a big team, a project called GeoWarn, global emergency and warning system using space infrastructure and, uh, also ground infrastructure and, and also some airplanes to detect natural, uh, disasters, early warnings for, uh, everything from uh, forest fires from, uh, uh insect infestations from uh, drought and, and also tsunamis, which you cannot detect in predict, predict, uh, really, but you can see the effect of it. So combining a lot of kind of data sources that you get from space through images, a lot of instruments coming, um, which actually can detect actually the, um, uh, moisture in, in, agriculture areas from space, right? You can detect if the water is, op- if you watered enough or, or not enough to optimize water. But all of this was uh, experimental in science as satellites and science infrastructure. And when we, and this was a collaboration between the US and, and Europe, and also I think the Japanese agency was in there as well. And we tried to launch it as a commercial project in the nineties, it failed. <laughs> completely. Uh, even if we, we said we could save thousands of lives, we could save billions of infrastructure, but uh, the technology was not ready. Mm. We couldn't really, really work and, and, and work on the data in an effective way to get these early warnings out in, in you know, a smart way. Um, 
and also it could be used for military purposes as well. This technology, right? So uh, it was not the the, the was that a reason ready. for stopping it? Or? It was a reason for stopping it. U- mm. UN actually, we went to UN present it, and uh, they finally said this can be uh, a curse and a blessing, right? Uh, mm. But it's probably going to be even worse if it's used in the wrong way. Mm. So uh, and we were not really ready with the technology, but if, uh, ever since that project, which I worked with for a couple of years, I thought you know. There will be a time when we are ready for this, and maybe this time is now, right? But when I started with Accenture, I was working with a lot of the venture business and different kind of businesses. Then I became more working in the BI area, which I thought was interesting, but also a little bit of boring to create all these reports, right? Uh, which no one read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> then this opportunity to work in the analytics and uh, area now called Applied Intelligence uh, at us. Uh, came up and I thought this is an opportunity to work more with data mm. and create the good out of data and, and business results out of data, which was the angle we took. Um, and now, I, you know, 20 years after I, I left uh, the aerospace business, I'm back into a project that we're working on globally with actually the same purpose, using the space infrastructure and ground infrastructure to detect um, uh, uh, issues like forest fires. Mm. early warnings. So I think you can do a lot of good things, but uh, what drive is driving me to this space is because I really think it can enhance business, enhance the world we live in, mm. to work with uh, data and also predictive analytics, more mm. advanced analytics, and AI, of course, machine learning. But what satellites are you then in that project? Are, are they private or? No, or? no, public. So that's the problem as well at that time. Now it's different, right? But, but at that time, long time ago, there were all scientific satellites, Earth, oh. Earth, Earth remote sensing satellites, like Envisat, ERS-1, 2, mm. and so on, right? Uh, so this, this is now different. I think ESA has very recently, just a year ago, started a commercialization department mm. just because they really want to make this scientific area public and mm. use for, for industries, right? So I think there is, NASA started that pushed by SpaceX a lot, Mm. Uh, a few years ago, and that has been quite successful. So I think it's moving into the right direction, but there is a lot of opportunities for this industry to create uh, good things. And that will be where we need to use technologies like AI mm. to actually process all this data in a smart way to detect, you know, problems. And easy things, like if you have an earthquake, you don't know what kind of infrastructure is existing, what kind of bridge does exist, where can you send your rescues um, uh, mm. people and, and so on, right? So these kind of easy things can be solved very straightforward today. Mm. Um, right, so moving into a little topic of today, right? Um, if I ask, throw out a question here, when it comes to doing good for public using AI, what comes to your mind? <laughs> Healthcare. I think. Uh, I think in general. I think healthcare is one of the industries that we're going to see the, the the largest positive impact from the use of AI. It um, it has a clear impact on people's lives, right? Given the um, the, the context, and um, I'm a strong believer that we can really transform the way we look at healthcare and the way we look at um, health in general, um, with everything from being able to, to predict diseases so that we can treat them in time to being able to 
optimize your way of living, um, of course, in a, in a healthy way. But um, I think there are so many good examples of how AI and data are really, really helping people um, in their daily lives and also saving lives. Mm. What, what kind of problems do you see in this area? Yeah, so with good comes p- potentially bad impacts uh, or effects also. So, so naturally, healthcare is a, what we call a high-risk industry, um, given the same assumptions that it's about people's lives. So there are, of course, um, really, really important risks to, to consider. Um, it all depends on the context, of course. It depends on whether you you're using AI to decide whether or not you should get a a COVID vaccine, or if you're using it to, say, uh, optimize uh, when you should go to bed um, or, or anything more in, in your daily life. Um, but of course, I mean, there's there's so many pitfalls when it comes to AI that we need to be mindful of. Um, everything from the data that we feed our, our algorithms and making sure that that's representative becomes even more important when it comes to healthcare situations. Um, usually your population is your population, right? Um, so, um, and there's a lot of diversity in our populations naturally. So you need to make sure that you, that you're representing everyone, everything from, from age to gender to other factors and mm-hmm. taking in the, them. Um, it's also about how we design the systems and who designs them. Um, we know from research that we as humans have inherent biases. So when I design something, I will naturally apply my inherent biases. It's the way we work. It's, uh, it's no one's fault. No one does that intentionally. Um, quite the opposite. People usually try and stay objective. Um, but that's definitely a pitfall to, to be mindful of. Um, and then, ah, oh, there, there's so many things to consider and, and, um, Oh, we. My, my, my view, I think you're absolutely yeah. right. My view is that healthcare, there is a big potential. Yeah. Uh, but it's also surrounded by a lot of restrictions, right? Yeah. Um, and that's for good. Yeah. You, you should be very aware of the, the danger of you know, this data should not be public, etc., anonymized and so on. But I think the problem I see is that the data is not available. Mm-hmm. We have, we are blessed in the Nordics and that's not only in Sweden. I would also know in Norway and Finland, they have, lots of quality registers, mm. you know, detecting for different types of diseases um, and lots of them. And they go back years, like decades. Yeah. Uh, so tons of data, extremely unique because many other countries don't have that data. But there is a problem to access this data, right? Mm. It can take more than a year for a researcher yeah. to access the data they would like to use for their research. And um, if you don't get access to the data, right, how do you let mm. it loose? How do you connect the different data sources? Because even if you look into one register, mm. it, it may be combined yeah. with data, should be combined with data from another register, actually to detect something that can, you know, change something completely, right? Yeah. And create a better cure or reduce the, the suffering mm. from something. And I think that is the problem. Uh, Norway, I know, has started to actually combine all their quality registers into a project that uh, the director of VE Health has started, which I think is a good move. But I haven't heard about that in Sweden. Is it also combined like cross-border, for example? Because I think that could be also like the next step if you want Mm -hmm. to find all these faults that could be there because of 
AI implementations, uh, I guess the more data you have, it would be easier to, to also uh, identify those type of faults. Possibly. Mm. I don't know if you can. But, um, but I think an interesting um, trend we're seeing that regards the, the, the general problem around data sharing and accessing the right data, which is a problem in other industries as well, but particularly in healthcare, is that there are innovations coming up that are at least trying to address this, this problem. For example, th- synthetic data, where you can actually, using AI, generate fake data, which has the same statistical properties as the real one. And um, I guess the value proposition of that is that you reduce the time that you have to spend in, in data acquisition. And if, if it works, I think that's it can have extremely large impact. But that must be so hard to convince. I, like I like the concept of synthetic data and I understand mm-hmm. the need of it. But And we talked about a bit about it uh, in a client pitch uh, a couple of weeks ago. But then I kind of said to myself, how, if you know all the statistical properties of the data, mm-hmm. how can you rely that you can build stuff that is meaningful with the real data? Like, to some extent, data analysis or the reason why you're doing, I mean, I mean this is a good field or a good example of that. If you have um, hidden patterns that you want to find in the data set if that spans to the 50s or whatever, and you realize, okay, there are some really interesting connections here because now we have some super powerful AI um, engine that <laughs> can find these patterns. But how can you ensure that the synthetic data has that? You know, that's, I guess, you don't know on forehand. So... I, I I don't say it's it's useless, but that's where I'm mentally trying to understand. You know how how do you ensure, or how, mm. like do you do you just use it to prepare the models and then you run the real data later on uh, to see that like okay now yeah. now it's live and now we pull the real data. I think given given where the technology is as of now, that's the way I understand it. That that's how you typically typically use it. Mm. So you can actually start modeling in mm. parallel to getting access to the real data. Mm. Um, so, so you, you kind of, um, you reduce this problem of having a cold start, but, um, but it's, it's still as with, with a lot of these uh, solutions it's still quite immature. There are a lot of really great companies out there, small companies, startups, scale-ups who are specialized in this, who I think are, are doing a great job mm. and, um, but they've only been around for a few years. Mm. So I think, I think it's, um, a field that's maturing as well. Oh, that's cool. But it's nothing is as good as real data, <laughs> correct, right? <laughs> of course. Yeah. But I think even, I mean, this area is interesting because it's actually saving life. I think the, um, the likelihood to detect breast cancer at an early stage, if you have an AI just doing it, is 92% or somewhere. If you have a patho- pathologist doing it, it's, uh, I think, 95% or 96%. Mm. But if you have a combination of an AI solution and a pathologist to do it, you have 99.5% chance to detect breast cancer at an early stage. And I, I think that is just uh, one evidence that the AI solutions can actually save lives. Yeah. Just one example. But I think also it's a good example of combination of human interactions with the data mm-hmm. that even enhances the performance of something. Yeah. Uh, which I think is, is really important, especially in, in healthcare, that could be really useful. Yeah. No, there will certainly be a lot of evolution on this, right? As long as we get the data, we can do a lot of good things there. Mm. Uh, do you have a good example, Peter, on 
No, but no, but I think you know I can just echo that. I I, I think um, a lot of um, of um, the thing we do with data visualization is about you know empowering the user, and it's it's kind of pointless without <laughs> the user. Uh, so I think it's super interesting. And how do you actually um, present data uh, on a meaningful way for a specific user, kind of on the right level with the right information? And we talk about, you know, different focus uh, areas. Uh, so you can see the overview first and then you can get the details and, yeah. you know, drill down and so on. But I guess, um, yeah, that's, that's uh, I truly believe that, you know, you can, we're, we're only at a very early stage of that. You know, I really mm -hmm. like the idea of combining artificial intelligence with the humans and, you know, mm -hmm. how we actually... Um, make decisions in a more smart way. And I think on that point, making decisions, right? Um, my, my view when working a lot with companies to actually implement, you know, state of the art technology, trying to get the data into the right shape, maybe on a cloud, which can be shared throughout the company. That's fairly, you know, straight, not straightforward. <laughs> it's, it's hard work, but it's, it, it is something everybody knows will make a difference, right? Mm. But I see the, the way you organized around, if you're a company been around for many, many, many years and then change the way you make decisions based on data mm. and taking uh, a clinical business, for example. I mean, you've been doing that work probably for 20, 30, 50 years, right? Maybe not 50 years, then you're retired, but you're doing it for a long time. And how to change with the technology that is developing so quickly, right? The organizations are not. And you, we try to push technology and the access of data to organizations that have been around for years. Mm. Isn't that a problem? Isn't that something that is slowing down the, the value? I, I think it's, it's very difficult. I mean, we, we work quite a lot with that, uh, trying to get uh, companies up and running, understanding the data, taking decisions on data. Yeah. But I also see a point here that is more democratizing the data and the insights across companies. So everybody can see what are the actual KPIs? What are we measuring here? And, and can take decisions on that based on the progress of what we're doing. Um, and I think that's, that's like key for companies today to organize them in, in a way so you can see that type of, uh, or that data and those insights mm. and can act on that. But how do you, how do you do that? <laughs> how do you, I, f I feel like that's, um, that's such a buzzword now. Yeah. Everyone wants to democratize their data. Everyone wants to, uh, but it could be simple things like you, you, you have goals for a quarter, for example, uh, and you can present them and you can also present the progress of getting to those goals in, let's say, a screen that you have in, in the company coffee room or something like that. That could be a very easy thing to kind of drive the company to the right goal. Mm. It's not so much about organizing themselves, but it's more about democratizing the data and, and making it available for people to see. Maybe teaching people how to interpret it yeah. and actually apply <laughs> it. <laughs> Otherwise, it's just nice dashboards. Yeah. 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 Or a pie yeah, chart. I mean, uh, or a pie chart. A pie chart. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put the pie chart on the screen. Mm. That's yeah, exactly. Yeah, With the quarter goals. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. No, but, uh, you know, uh, data literacy for me is, is maybe a bit, uh, I guess that, that's what we're talking about, Andrea. Um, I think definitely that's a field that um, feels like it, it's picking up speed in uh, many organizations. You know, uh, how do you 
actually raise the data literacy across the organization. And for me, if you build dashboards, it's it's kind of a design uh, failure if if you uh, need to train people how to interpret it. Mm. Um, that's my feeling. Um, but um, data literacy for me is more about okay, but the next level of things like how do you how do you kind of drill down or or how mm. do you build uh, analyze the data yourself? What happens if I if I drill down on a really small sample and I see a KPI, you know, going way off, that you understand it's kind of statistical properties of data. You know, if you if you go too deep, you can't really look at the average and, and draw a conclusion on it, for instance. Mm. And how you actually think about comparing and benchmarking with relevance. That's for me more the data literacy themes. Uh, reading a bar chart and a line chart yeah, I think most people in organizations know how to do that. Then, but then, yes, there are of course these. If you start building these experimental dashboards with sanky charts mm. and and core diagrams, or mm. you know all this funky stuff, yeah, <laughs> uh, maybe you need to have a crash course in it. But but I don't think that's really the right decision to do. But if you really want to create a data-driven company, you need to have that on all roles that is actually working in the company, right? So if you work with uh, something, you know, you, you have a desk and you work behind your your laptop or whatever, then you probably are, it's easy for you to get to understand how to drill down the data, how to create mm-hmm. your own questions and uh, challenge the data in order to find out more about what the real problem is. But if you mount the cars on the in the mm-hmm. factories, right, you also need to understand the data. Of course, you may see fact, you know, the quality problems mm. coming up, and you want to understand what component is creating these problems. So, it, probably you need to create personas, you yeah. know, in diff, for different roles you have in the company. Mm. Maybe you also apply behavior science to actually mm. find out how you actually change the way you look at the problem with the with the help of data. Yeah, for me, that's I, I don't know. Maybe it's the next level of data democratization. But but I think that's really uh, where I think uh, successful companies must go towards where they uh, enable, you know, the initial insights, they package it and say, Okay, but here's the data, maybe that guy on the uh, construction belt of at Volvo, um, you know, he sees that and, and you know, he, in, he or she realize that there's something going on here in this quality of this component. Mm-hmm. Uh, he could see that on this ready-made dashboard, but then he wants to under, understand, you know, what's driving that or what's, you know, how's that connected? Mm-hmm. And data democratization for me is that, you know, the, it doesn't end with a dashboard or, or with right-click export to Excel and you get the same numbers in an Excel pivot. Um, but actually that you are able to, okay, there is a database, data lake, lake house, whatever, um, where, where you can access the data easily. You could query, maybe you could connect it, do a join with something, um, and look at it, visualize it, share it without too many hurdles and without requiring too much technical, uh, competence. That's my, uh, my view uh, of where we're going. Cool. Coming back to the topic of uh, good for society, right? <clears throat> I mean, do you have, a, we talked about uh, healthcare 
and what we can do there. We talked a little bit about how to change the organizations, how to work smarter. Any any concrete example that you would like to bring up? I mean, I, we are sitting now in a, I would say it's it's a cellar, right? Old cellar, uh, which is probably heated by the uh, surrounding soil. <laughs> so, so it's probably very, uh, very environmental smart. But if you take buildings, for example, you know, how to optimize the energy mm. in the building for, you know, creating a nice place to work, nice place to live uh, without vas- wasting. I think AI can actually reduce waste in many different ways, right? Mm. In predicting the demand, you can also optimize your supply, right? Predicting the weather, for example, in, in buildings, and you have the temperature, um, the climate within the building yeah. can be steered depending on how many people and those kind of things. I think overall, when it comes to sustainability, I think here we're going to see and are seeing a a tremendous impact from the use of data and analytics. And um, it's, um, it usually starts with report for reporting purposes that, um, I mean, there's a, there's a growing uh, from, from the regulatory side, there's growing pressure to, um, to, um, report on your performance. So obviously, obviously that means that you need to have the necessary data to, to perform those reports. But um, it's, it's more than that. It's about making sure that you are achieving your targets, making informed decisions. And um, I think that's an area that's going to be extremely interesting to, to follow. Wasn't that the case with uh, like the insurance and the banking industry 10 years ago with kind of the forced uh, regulations on, on the compliance that they had to invest heavily in, in, um, in the systems that could handle the data? I think uh, SAS uh, was kind of one of the bank uh, or kind of the winners of that, uh, you know, a lot of investments in, in their solutions for banks and insurances. Um, but the good side with that is that, you know, then clients or companies sits with uh, suddenly technical capabilities of doing things. So, um, you know, on one side, it's kind of forced and it's, you know, maybe it's a bit weird sometimes to see the money that they pour on such things, but then it enables uh, kind of the, it's what comes after that is interesting, right? Uh, when you start, okay, actually now we can do st- interesting stuff here, analysis and things like that. And I think that's really interesting when you think about, because I, I, I don't necessarily think that a lot of people think like that. Mm. This whole, so there's, there's this big pressure of, of um, transforming businesses and, and uh, infusing data in, in all business functions, basically. And mm. I think, and that's obviously driven by, by the business impact that's going to have and the business value that will be realized. But what you're onto now, I think, is extremely it's it's as important and it's as valid, which is that once you once you transform all the functions, you also open up for new possibilities mm-hmm. across marketing, across sales, across supply, across finance. And that really enables you to achieve even more when it comes to the sustainability part. So I think when we talk about data transformations or digital transformations, we usually talk about the business value in monetary terms. What top line impact are you going to see? What bottom line impact are you going to see? But I think it also calls for this narrative of, okay, what sustainability impact is it going to have? And that obviously relates back to your financial performance as well. Mm. But if you, if you really 
you know, become on top of your data, you're really aware of what you can do. You satisfy the regulatory authority. That's great, right? <clears throat> Maybe you feel threatened about your job is going to be taken over by <laughs> AI. But most likely that that type of that part of the work may not be so interesting. But or it can be, right? I mean there is a lot of debate in the in the everywhere, right? That uh, AI is a threat for for work, but maybe that is an evolution we need to just embrace because it will actually push ourselves, like we are pushed by the pandemic, to mm. actually act in a new way mm. and learn new technologies. We are pushed by the energy crisis to actually accelerate the use of renewable energies and, and other mm. sources. Maybe also AI will push ourselves to actually bring out new skills and retool ourselves to actually yeah I'm smarter but that, that is the combination of AI. I'm, t- I'm, I'm thinking about the combination of ai and human right yeah. exactly that I, combination i'm no historian but you know looking back at uh, uh, at what's been uh, when we uh, you know got more efficient uh, machines and and support in in farming you know it, it suddenly led to uh, that we could, you know, do different things. You know, it was really uh, kind of a, a needed thing for getting the, uh, the rest of the industrialization going. Um, so I think uh, historically we've had those type of shifts, right? That suddenly uh, workforce, uh, you know, what was uh, something that was a common thing to do and work with suddenly didn't. Uh, wasn't that uh, there anymore? Like, so um, I think you know that can lead to uh, shifts to other things we can do. Mm. I mean, we're still doing it. I guess uh, as a society as a whole, it's more efficiency, right? It, it's like we could do different things instead. Mm. I also think that we should talk more about how how it's going to complement the work. And not necessarily replace it. Mm-hmm. We were onto that a bit before about when we're talking about healthcare and how AI could potentially now be um, a, a tool for clinicians to use. They're still going to be the ones making the decisions and, and performing the actual clinical work, but they have new tools. Um, so it's 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 about this, um, and you were onto that before <laughs> as well about human plus machine, um, and that's something I think we should talk about more how it's how it's complementary and how we how we enable that but it's like uh, Petra is doing with visualizations we're helping people to take easier decisions with the help of data and mm. ai and i think that that's kind of the first part and the next part could be that uh, like ai takes decisions for us in a way mm. but then we need to be really sure what data is behind that decision and, and so on mm. exactly uh, but but yeah to trust yeah. it yeah, exactly. The trust, it, right. trust the, the data, quality. trust the, yeah, exactly. And trust the algorithm. I, I don't know. I, maybe we do, maybe we don't. Do we need mm. to understand the algorithm? Maybe, maybe not. I mean, we, na- we have to understand the data behind it, mm. but the algorithm itself, not sure. Do you have any comments here, yeah. Andrea or Peter? Do you want to go? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, the, the difficult answer is it depends. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> um, in some regards, it's going to be regulated saying that in certain scenarios you're going to have to be able to explain the reasoning behind the decision um, in certain scenarios. And I think, uh, coming back to the healthcare example, I think in those types of, um, in those types of scenarios, in high-risk scenarios, 
I think is particularly important. Mm. Um, there's this really good example of um, when AI was used to uh, predict um, or identify rather um, cancer cells on a X-ray image. And um, no, no, sorry, no, I'm, I'm actually explaining <laughs> it wrong. It was used to um, predict whether or not the patient had cancer looking at X-ray images. And um, then, and then the, the, the clinician got the prediction. And then when they kind of backtraced that, asking the algorithm, okay, what in this picture made, is, is the reason behind the, this decision? And then the clinician was able to, to, um, to say that it was wrong. Um, so in those types of scenarios, I think it's extremely important that we can actually question the reasoning, um, and, and understand it, but in other scenarios, not, not so much. So very diplomatic answer. But, uh, the new regulation that EU will actually, uh, decide on in December, right? Yeah. Uh, to be implemented in, in at least two, more than two, more two, years, two yeah. more years. So you get two years actually to apply for that new regulations. With that, and that is on AI, the mm. AI Act of EU. Will that regulation also um, make you have to understand the algorithm in order to create the non-biased solutions? To how deep? How deep will it go? Yeah, to some regard, uh, there, um, and, and it's still it's still a draft, as you say. So, so we don't actually know the the extent of that, but um, but we have some understanding. And um, without going into to any details and, and going into regulatory text, but um, for AI systems that are considered high risk, um, you will have very strict restrictions put on you when it comes to ensuring that your your data is free of bias, to checking that it's free, so assessing your your AI for for fairness, and um, also being able to to explain to some extent. Um, so there will be there will be restrictions on that, but I th I think also when we talk about in general when we talk about um, these topics that that kind of falls under the umbrella of ethical AI or responsible AI, we tend to focus a lot on regulation and it's um, uh, it's of obvious reasons because it's something that's going to have a huge impact on businesses on public sector organizations and and us as citizens, but. Um, I feel like that narrative is sometimes too, it, it's a bit misleading because to me, all of this is a, it's an opportunity. It's a business opportunity mm -hmm. and uh, it's an opportunity to be able to actually use AI more and to drive the democratization internally and to find these use cases and um, examples where you can actually apply the, uh, oh, you can apply data and, and AI for good. Mm -hmm. And, um, there are lots of examples where, where companies and also public sector organizations have, have tried to, to, um, to use the data they have. They've tried to use AI and they've had good intentions. Um, I think the COVID pandemic is a really good example where a lot of, in many European countries and in other countries in the world where, um, where, uh, where they actually from, from the government side tried to, um, try to look at what data they have to to make informed decisions, um, but uh, a lot of that backfired because they hadn't really done this prep work of of uh, looking at okay how can people what what about people's um, perceptions of this what about privacy what about fairness and so on um, so if you don't 
if you don't think about that before you actually go out and start using data, you start designing AI systems, you can end up in these scenarios where you actually have to cancel projects where you've perhaps poured millions and millions of, mm. of dollars into. Um, so for me, it's more about, I mean, the reg regulation is really important, of course, mm. but it is about the business opportunity mm. as well and what you can do with data and AI. Evolution, Peter, <laughs> of something that, I mean, you've, you were part of developing a solution a few years ago, which actually was not intended to be used in the pandemic, right? Yeah, pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, but then, then there was an obvious solution that actually could to yeah, help out a lot uh, our uh, folk hälso myndighet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so... Um, it connects a bit to what Andrea just said. Um, uh, there was a, a solution we we worked uh, with uh, Telia um, to establish a, a new way of using the signaling data they have in their uh, networks, and uh, it was designed with the privacy in mind. Uh, so we didn't end up uh, in that that situation you mentioned. We knew. From from start, that this of course um, would be scrutinized from an integrity perspective. But that that solution was initially intended to to be used or, or was in initially used uh, for insights on, on people movements. It's called crowd crowd analytics. It was called initially, but changed name to crowd insights and uh, part of Telia Division X. And um, it was uh, intended to give insights on, on public transportation, uh, urban planning, tourism, and things like that. Um, and uh, um, basically it uh, was a solution that used the signaling data in the mobile networks to understand, um, and, and the signaling data of course has information of which antennas are being used. Um, and where those antennas mm. are <laughs> positioned and uh, also actually where they are kind of directed on the actual mast. And uh, with that information, the, uh, uh, the, the, the intention of this or the solution was to understand how people move around in society. The data was aggregated and anonymized. So, you know, we could only look at groups of people, um, but uh, that solution, uh, had been live for a year, maybe when the pandemic hit, maybe even a bit more, I don't remember. But when the pandemic came, it suddenly we had this uh, solution that was live in, in um, I think, four or five Nordic countries, uh, including uh, one Baltic uh, country, I think. Um, and it was basically perfect for understanding, you know, how do people move around how how are our recommendations and and guidelines for working from home avoid public transportation and things like that and we could use it for for kind of seeing how that was um uh, yeah how people did that how well they did it um and more interestingly since uh, in sweden we we had these recommendations whereas in some countries they uh, nordic neighbors they had more strict uh, these are the rules you're not allowed to do these and your kind of restaurants are closed etc 
but we had a more soft approach here. And then it was more interesting, you know, how well will we maintain the level? Uh, we saw that we dropped the movement and we saw that you know, people worked from home to a higher degree. But how, how, how was that maintained over time? Um, um, yeah, and it, it, you know, fairly early on in the pandemic, we got to connect with Folkhälsomyndigheten and um, we enabled them that um, the insights of, of the things we built there, we built some custom stuff for them um, that was updated daily. Um, and yeah, that was, uh, was a long, uh, interesting journey with them. And um, I think... And nowadays they are they are still using that. As I heard, it, they're now a, more of a paying customer of, of uh, or a commercial customer of Telia for for the service. But initially, it was kind of a pandemic uh, thing. We tried to just uh, all hands at tech trying to to help out both us and, and Telia. Mm. Did you connect that to to how the spread was going also and? Or, or? Yeah, that that was more complex. I think we discussed that, and you know, if we could, you know, see how. But no, uh, I guess the short answer is no. But we we um, we could, you know, um, see um, different trends in ability to work from home, um, and see kind of community down to lower level on how. Know, how was it before? How many people of a certain, I don't know, zip code or or area did before work from home uh, or, and and work from other ways? Uh, how many? How big share of that population moved out in the morning and came back in the afternoon or evening? And compare that. And that was kind of interesting uh, also to see the regional differences. But uh, and I think that was also something you know that the p- whole period was so much about people you know thinking uh, and and you know speculating. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but some people can't work from home, and uh, it's a fair point, right? Um, in some areas uh, where you have more blue collar uh, workers. Uh, it, being a bus driver, you don't have the option of working from home. But we, a consultant uh, sitting at the computers, we had the opportunity of working from home to a different degree. But we had data on it. We can actually you know, show how that looked like uh, region for region and or fairly small geographical areas and we can you know, in, stop the speculations. Mm. And more or less real time, you can see the you know, different patterns, different times of the day and so on, right? So you could... Yeah, with one day delay, that's almost real. <laughs> okay, yeah. Delay, delay. Uh, yeah, no, but it was delayed. It, due to the anonymization and aggregation and everything like that, mm. we, we had a solution that was, you know, very, very rigid there. We discussed a bit around that, you know, how can we, can we get still um, quicker data with still maintain integrity, but uh, that was, I don't think they have um, done anything around that. So there's this delay where you collect data for 24 hours, anonymize, aggregate it, and then we kind of make it available for analysis. Cool. Mm. I, yeah. Yes, Jonas. No, I think it was, uh, no, I was just going to say that I think, I think it's a great example as well, where public sector actually collaborates with the private sector. And, um, when we talk about data and AI for good, I think that's, I'd like to see more of those types of collaborations because I think that um, it really, I mean, we're, we're good at different things, right? So um, 
I think that's um, that's something to also yeah. consider yeah. for the future. Yeah, I think another kind of case of uh, public and and, uh, and private collaboration is the in the elderly care uh, a project called Memory Lane. Mm. Have you heard about that? Yep. Yeah. Uh, where actually you the target will be more elderly people who are you know quite much alone and and not uh, having anyone to talk to but they have a you know they have a life of lifetime of stories to mm-hmm. to tell right but they are sitting alone and of course it's not stimulating at all uh, uh, you know and and that is a kind of a downward spiral in that case if you don't get someone to talk to and socialize with so the project is about to create uh have a bot actually to where the elderly people can talk to that bot and actually tell them the story of their life, you know, high moments, low moments, whatever happened, right? And after some time, this bot will learn about this story and they will be able to have a conversation, ask questions. How about this fishing trip? How about this, uh, this memory when your kids were small and so on, right? This is stimulating a lot. And I think this is, if you talk about AI doing good, that's fantastic, right? Yeah. If you can, um, and I think this was, I heard about this a couple of years ago and uh, I talked to a friend of mine here recently about uh, how this has evolved. I don't know, but it's actually a very good idea to to use AI to actually be a company to someone, right? AI can be a, a curse and a blessing. And I think everybody, I have four kids, they are addicted to their smartphones. <laughs> Sometimes I think this is a curse, right? But you can do a lot. You can also turn it around and say AI can be a blessing if you use it in the right way. Yeah. You talked about um, data there and creating those memories. And we talked about integrity before. And I'm thinking collecting all that data and connecting people in that way Mm. could also be really cool. Like Mm. you, you can really get a human friend to talk to that have kind of the same experiences that you have or connecting in like the years that you've been fishing, for example, or fishing in the same area, for example. I think that could be pretty cool. (laughs) But will we see more of those kind of maybe a bit less commercially driven solutions coming? Like what we see now is kind of the pinnacle of the AI algorithm is kind of TikTok uh, optimization for recommending the next Mm. video. I don't know, but are, you know, and it's all about, you know, just uh, getting phones to uh, people to be more stuck to their phones and, and, you know, I'm optimistic, but uh, I think you can combine data in many ways to get like, get the society being better, connecting people together. But um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's open. Mm. I think it again. I think it depends a lot. I think um, one thing that that um, that really encourages that scenario is the um, the democratization of this technology in general. I mean, yeah. there there are lots of uh, tools now where anyone who's not a professional data scientist can actually build their own AI models and and um, and play around with it. Um, so from from that point of view, I think it uh, that's a really good scenario for. For NGOs and mm. and for those types of organizations who aren't really commercially driven, who might have a better incentive at least in the beginning to explore these types of use cases, but um, I'm really optimistic also that that we're seeing a lot of perhaps not so much in in the in this particular 
field, but I think we're seeing a lot of really good examples of how how we're changing our business models. And we're actually include. I mean, we're changing the way we we think about value. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, in general, if that's the direction things will go, I think we're going to see more commercially oriented or organizations who who will explore these fields as well. I think it's about finding that balance of. I mean, we live in a in a society where where companies are expected to make a profit, and that still needs to happen. But if we can find innovative ways of solving really difficult challenges where people can can be can be the beneficiator while also combining that with with value i think that's that's the golden point but do you know about uh, the work that Annie and caro did with the yeah. barnen uh, isn't that kind of in that field where we we actually use something for Definitely. less commercial uh, yeah uh, interest and that project is really 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 it's really it's really cool actually um so it was about saving save the children who um partnered up with uh, with us and um the purpose was to fight um um i don't know what what specific word they used for it but um toxic toxic, uh, to- that's yeah. that's great the toxic behavior in online gaming yeah. among children um I mean, I, I don't have children myself, but but maybe you. <laughs> you do yeah, I have, who have. I have two that are gamers. Gamers, uh, yeah. yeah. And you probably heard we if they're talking to each other on mm. Discord or whatever platform yeah. they're using, and and general in general, like in the online environment, it can be quite harsh. Um, and I think that's like sipping down in ages now. Mm. Um, so this project was about using AI to actually find that type of behavior in um, in online gaming chats and being able to to steer away from that. Um, so that's a, a really, really good example of how we're using data and AI for for good purposes. But maybe that is the 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 way to go to say that you need to have a commercial driven you know area to actually mm. develop your AI for something like you know, we did with Crowd Insight, like with the, the technology behind the Save the Children and also technology behind Memory Lane. But you need also companies who are commercially driven, needs to be good citizens, so to say, good exactly. companies for the society. And I think that requirements from their customers for their brands will increase. Mm. And in order to fulfill that requirements, you need to actually do these type of project and that I think will, and that's good. It will be more and more because that technology, that experience, that kind of making good for society will be a low investment for something that is already working that you actually, uh, so I think this is a good trend and I see this will continue, right? The more technology will develop. Mm. But it's as as Andrea says, I mean, it's been business driven, but now values are changing a little bit and, and, all companies, of course, want to do good, but they also want to have a good business. So only just sharing data that could be interesting for maybe another um, organization like Radovan, for example, to use that data and to do good with it. It's um, the perfect case and like, really good branding for that that company, I would say. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, may I throw something on the table? <laughs> do it. Yeah. yeah. Sure. I'll need some. So, um, do you know Ray Kurzweil? Yeah. 
Yeah, he's kind of a <laughs> predicting the future, right? He was predicting the smartphone. He's predicting a lot of stuff, right? And he's uh, he's quite old now, but he's um, I think he's still alive. <laughs> but he is saying that in the 2030, I think he said that a few years ago, nanobot will in our brains will make us godlike. Hmm. So his, I think his vision will be that we will connect ourselves with nanobots mm. to, to the world. Can you imagine to connect yourself in the brain to Wikipedia? Yeah. And everything is not true in Wikipedia, right? That's a problem as well. But <laughs> you connect yourself, yeah. right, to something that is then kind you of can giving get you endless of competence, right? Yeah. Is this the future? Is this something I, we want? I, I think it could be the future, and I think I'm not sure if we want it, but... I see the human body almost like a operating system going forward where you can download apps to kind of... I, I have my chip in my arm, right? I mean, exactly. Which I'm using for open my car yeah. and uh, open the doors. Yeah. That's quite limited if you compare to race uh, kind of vision. Of course. But I mean, the technology is going forward there. So, so you can do a lot of those things. And I think going forward, you will be able to do even more of those kind of ex extravagant things. Um, yeah. Peter, you're smiling. No, but I, yeah, I just feel the, feel I'm I'm lost in this. I I, I don't have a, a really good point on on. But it, it yeah, I guess um, I'm a bit uh, hesitant on, on that vision. But uh, yeah, but you can also. He's been right before, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But connecting, uh, let's say that you lose an arm, for example, connecting that type of body part to to a human body, and then you will get, uh, I guess, a stronger arm, hmm? even. It could be pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, like uh, some companies like, uh, uh, I think there is a company, Tobi, in, mm -hmm. uh, in Stockholm, yeah. who is developing technology for really uh, severe handicapped people, right? Who actually can record their voice. And uh, when they cannot speak, they can record before they're getting so ill, they can record the voice if there is an evolution of the sickness. And then they can use that voice to actually play it back by using eye movements and, and so on, right? Mm. This is really interesting enhancement of, of what you can do when you are really uh, severely handicapped. But that's something else, of course, than having a full, <laughs> a, a, a completely complete body, right? And, and then connect to the internet. Mm. I'm, I'm more thinking about at least this scenario where, you, where you're connecting like your cognitive abilities mm. and uh, suddenly everyone because, I mean, what's going to happen then is that suddenly everyone has the same, every, everyone, it kind of levels the playing field. You're not going to be smarter than I am because we have the same information. And we know as much. Um, but I'm just wondering whether that's, whether we want that, <laughs> to be super philosophical. Aren't our, us as humans, aren't our, like, we're naturally driven to constantly evolve. And um, we don't, we're not really satisfied with anything that uh, it kind of lies in our, in our human nature that we want to, we want to constantly evolve in everything, in all parts of society. And if we suddenly like have everything at our hands, what's just wondering what's going to happen is if everyone's just going to feel they aren't going to feel anything because... I think there would be a limit where humans cannot evolve fast enough and technology yeah. is faster. Yeah. Uh, and in that sense, I think 
maybe we come to that part, but then it's more of compute power. Yeah. <laughs> Would we have different compute power? <laughs> I don't know. Becomes the new class issue. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. But what well, do you what do you think? What's what's your No, I, I I I cannot say anything about that prediction from Ray, right? But no. I can just make us uh, been around for a while. What we believe is science fiction today and really far away and we cannot just imagine it will ever happen, is most likely will happen. Because if you go back like ten years, twenty years, thirty years back, mm. when I started to work thirty years back, right? Things that we're doing now, which is very natural, mm. they they were you know, we didn't even think about that. It was just unimaginable. Mm. Mm. So I think we, we just need to be, and that's also, uh, uh, that's something a lot of people are talking about, right? What is the fear factor with AI? Mm. I think it's a big fear factor as well. If you don't regulate, if you don't uh, treat it with respect, etc. I think uh, there are many people, including Musk, that believes that, you know, this is the, most dangerous weapon ever uh, developed, right? AI, if you don't control it. Mm. And so I think what we believe now is far, far away, like you were smiling, Peter, and you were a super smart guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, it, it, you never know. I think oh. we just need to be aware of that things are going very, very fast. And uh, with the access of data and also there are very, you know, controlled um, Societies that is regulating the access to data, but not all societies are regulating the access of data. Mm-hmm. That uh, data is the fuel to any kind of AI solution. Yeah. And with that data, you can probably manipulate a lot, but you can also create a lot of good, depending on what the purpose you have. Mm-hmm. But I haven't, you know, the innovation the last 20 years or the kind of the main innovation center has been around the smartphone. Oh, need to be closer. (coughs) No, a lot of the things we're seeing uh, that are changed, you know, fundamentally since we grew up um, is centered around the phone. Mm. Yeah, there are some flying drones some extent, and there's some stuff going on on, um, you know, innovation or kind of better research in, in medics, and better ability to do th- certain things, but it's kind of not in, in the same revolutionizing uh, how we live. Do you, do you agree, Per? Yes, I agree. A smartphone is a device, right? Uh, it's like you're driving a state-of-the-art car. It's like a device as well, more than a car, right? It's a communication device. And I think the smartphone is just a carrier of a lot of things. Yeah. You know, it's just a way to communicate these things to the public. Yeah. Um, so it's not like uh, inventing a new car. We haven't invented a new car. We have uh, evolved the car. The smartphone was a step change in communication from you know, only having the uh, the old call, you know, Wired. phone where you buy, where I need to call someone and talk to someone. I think the generation growing up now they they feel awkward talking to someone, right? They really want to have another way <laughs> yes. of communicating, just calling someone and and sending voice uh, memos. Yeah, exactly. I, I find that weird. Yeah, Instead of but you and I are too old for yeah. that. I think <laughs> yeah, maybe your teenagers uh, are more 
the ones likely to do it. But do you guys think the smartphone will be here for uh, for a long time, or will it change? Will it be another thing? Will it be the body? Will it be like glasses or? I don't know. It feels like how long was it? Twenty oh seven. Twenty oh seven. The iPhone came. Yeah. So it's been around now for fifteen yeah. years. It's not that long. No. But Google Glass, that was kind of 10 years ago, or when was the idea that, you know, you would have other things and the, the smartwatches came and, you know, but it, we still have that phone. And that like Oculus technology, like uh, virtual glasses. Or yeah. Mm. That's, that's kind of a next step. Imagine, yeah. imagine having uh, vacations <laughs> within your uh, VR world. Yeah. That's... Sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, it really does. But I mean, people are growing up with this digital technology yeah. now. I, I guess it's not that far fetched. Do yeah, but that goes back to you know the philosophical question: if you can go on vacation there, like yeah, yeah it's it's kind of this effort and and um, reward. Mm. Like yeah. it's just reward and no effort uh, or no price. <laughs> like, yeah. but then kind of. It, the reward doesn't taste or, yeah, you know, it's it's it really, you know, it's like, yeah. But I, I'm, also, I'm also a believer that crisis will drive evolution, right? Mm. I'm not sure if there was a crisis that uh, pushed uh, the uh, smartphone forward in 2007. Uh, maybe not. <laughs> but I think uh, we have sustainability, the environment is a crisis in crisis now. Yeah. I think in this area, using data and AI solutions will probably also be revolutionary. Mm. for how to solve that problem. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. I think crises are pushing the boundaries quicker. If yeah. you look on the positive side, right? Yeah. yeah. Energy crisis. And yeah. Environmental crisis. Yeah, at least, you know, the energy crisis, at least, you know, it has both, you know, monetary effects and, and um, mm. you know, it, it's a hot topic for, um, yeah, society in general, but now it's also very much in the economy as well. But I also think that, I mean, it's, it, it definitely, definitely applies, but it's also, I think if we, um, if we just talk about the, the overall business environment and the, the crisis that a lot of companies are, are currently, are currently, um, facing when it comes to say supply chains that are disrupted, um, we have, uh, steeping inflation, data is going to be a driver there as well. Mm. Just like the pandemic was for, for a lot of companies that we saw that those companies that actually managed the pandemic times quite well were the ones who were already on the path to becoming data driven. And I think the same applies for, for other type of crisis scenarios. Um, I, th I think I, he I heard that, um, uh, that, uh, in, in some client dialogue we had, um, they were saying that if we, based on the, the targets that we have, it does, it's not enough to just cut down costs with, and then this at a, an extremely high percentage. <laughs> it's not enough. We're not going to reach the targets. We need to continue to grow as well. And how do we do that in these really uncertain times? How do we, how do we realize that scenario? And they look towards data. And wanted to look at how can we how can how can we infuse data in our business so that we can actually one become more efficient in the way that we operate and and save a lot of money doing that, but also how can we grow our top line? 
And um, that was purely like that really radical. They had a really radical idea what they wanted to achieve and how they were going to achieve it in what timeline. And that was driven by crisis mm. because of the times they're in now. So I, th I think that the same reasoning goes on, on different There is life and death mm. situations, of course, but it's it's also more about like the business environment. I think supply chain is a very good idea, a uh, very good uh, example, mm. Mm. where um, the shortage of components and shortage yeah. of mm. goods, right, is creating a ripple effect for for a long time. Mm. Just the uh, the ship in uh, in the channel, the yeah. Suez channel, right, created <laughs> that effect. Then became the rest of the crisis, right. So the whole supply chain, but then. How do you how do you solve that problem by predicting demand much more accurate? So you actually can make sure you don't create a surplus of goods. Mm. You actually create a very effective supply chain of of supply of goods to create this to meet that demand. Because the worst thing you can do when you have that problem is to actually stock up things in a in a warehouse somewhere. Yeah, but that might not be the solution. It might be more effective ways to get the. Um, The products, or or having a, a separate supply chain in another way, or, or like several ways to get your supplies, mm. uh, and I think that's something that, as you said, like crisis drives this. This is something that companies are thinking of now, but they probably didn't before, because this this made them see the the potential threat of of the supply chain. Mm. Mm. Right. Definitely. Yeah, but is it you know? Are we um, not not learning from um, that, that there's kind of a, a, a weak spot in the setup of the global supply chains that we can't be, you know, relying on China just shipping things to us? Aren't that's isn't that what we need to do? Like to also look at alternative sourcing methods. We can't just you know, have one. You mean local production? Yeah, or a kind of hybrid, maybe. Mm. But I think that's the the overall direction that a lot of countries are mm. are many many years ago. I um, I worked at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs in Stockholm with uh, trade actually. Mm. Cool. Um, and um, there, the big uh, the the talk on the town was uh, protectionism, and the, even in in Europe among within the European Union, people um, countries were um, establishing these trade barriers. And they were becoming really protectionistic in in their way of of doing um, business with other countries, and that was also the case on the on the digital side. Mm. Um, so it's uh, I th I think that's a, a trend um, that that we're seeing. Yeah, I think also I'm um, near nearly produced stuff in in general. It's also a sustainability topic. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of connecting to to that time of environmental thinking and, and climate change. Um, yeah. So what is being done in this sector of, you know, saving the world, sustainability? Now we're talking a lot about ESG reporting, right? That mm -hmm. is super important, but ESG reporting by itself will not save any, any planet. No. no. What is your view on where this will lead to? What is the next thing we should use? Bio? Diversity is that the number one topic? Is it going to be the uh, you know not, uh, renewable energy or yeah? It's <laughs> there's so many things. We should have had Anna Tundervold here. We should have. To, uh, we should have. We should, let's invite her next time. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think that topic is very data driven. 
That's why yeah. I, it, is. it is very data-driven. And of course, for reporting, I think this is a big problem today to actually create this data yeah. for the report and, and make it happen, right? But when you get the insight, Libby was better, was alluding to, when you see the data, you also understand what you need to do, what you need to fix, right? Yeah. In order to be a good... But like, uh, like Andrea said before, connecting that data that you use for reporting now to the business side will kind of increase the value of the company itself mm. uh, in, in also being sustainable or, or better as a company. And I think that's, uh, mm. even though they will better the top line, mm. uh, I think that's kind of where we're going at the moment. With and, and do we need more regulations to push this? Or do we need more angry citizens to push <laughs> it? <laughs> both? I think, yeah, I think, I think both, um, definitely. I think this is... Uh, that type of crisis where we need to work at all fronts. I mean, it's it's the public sector doing their part. It's definitely the um, the private sector doing their part. Companies, um, and um, I think change happens when you start looking at things um, across. But um, but coming back to to your question from the beginning, I think as you were saying, I mean, a lot of um, the focus is now on reporting and bringing visibility to to the current state. And that's a struggle for many, mm. I should say, that many companies are even struggling with understanding, like, okay, how much emissions are we actually sending out each year? Basic questions like that. And um, it's a matter of data quality. It's a matter of understanding what additional data you have and so on. But it is it is the first step because you need to understand your current state before you can start to like change anything. You need to understand what, what's your baseline. Mm. And then once you have that insight, once you understand where should we prioritize, mm. then you connect that to your targets. Mm. And um, and if you can then operate in a way so that you're embedding intelligence in your in your operations and that you can get the, a quick feedback loop and, and constantly see, not just get data each year mm. and seeing how are we doing, but you should get it every every week, every month. And understanding how how are we actually doing? Do we need to take any extra measures? Are the targets that we've set are we reaching those? So I think it's it's about looking at it on a maturity scale, seeing where where do you start and then where do you go from there. Mm. But that's you know that's part of of steering any organization, right? That you you can't yeah. do it like every year. You kind of turn on the <laughs> on on the rudder. Uh, have instant understanding of mm. what happens if I pull here. What's the impact of it? How how do you actually mm. optimize? Um, and wh what actually matters? Mm. Reduce the heat. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it has this impact. Good, good. I know. Yeah. It's Smart buildings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Smart buildings. Yeah. Cool. Um, any other reflections on this? No, just just um, like we're talking about heavy subjects, but uh, but I'm really positive about this. I'm um, I'm convinced that um, I mean this is going to be an data AI is going to be an enabler of of good things, and I think that from a societal point of view and as a citizen, not just speaking as a as a strategy consultant, but uh, as a citizen, saying I'm I'm convinced that I think I think there's a lot of possibilities here. Um, but um, there's a long way to go. Do we have enough people who actually can um, develop these solutions? 
That is a good question. I mean, enabling this for the normal people, I think that will be mm -hmm. the next step of enabling AI to be becoming even more relevant for society. Um, not sure how, how that will go, but I, I think that's what we need. Will you have AI developing AI? Of course. <laughs> I think, I think. <laughs> Then we will be, we will be redundant, right? <laughs> Fear no, but that, that's when we go back to kind of the data quality and, and, and things behind. We, we have to know which data there is and, and what's mm. actually behind. Mm. Uh, Maybe the AI can do that for us. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it could. It could be based on data that, that, they, that another AI have, have done. Um, but I think that's probably not... Um, I mean, it's of course good in, in one way, but I don't think that's the solution. But it's, it's something the AI cannot do. I mean, we maybe don't want it because it's going to be risk for bias, non-bias and so on, right? And the data may be wrong, but is it something that they, I mean, have you looked at the painting the AI can do? Mm. It's yeah. fantastic. Right? Yeah, it's it's super nice. So even artists yeah. will be redundant if you really, you know, you can use it. So is it something AI cannot do? You can build a, a house, right? Yeah. I mean, there's always this talk about um, empathy and, and human feelings and uh, that type of interaction that we're never going to to achieve that with with machines. Um, is, is that still true? I mean, really? it, everything is based on logic, I think, yeah. in a way. And, and even human feelings by, might be based on logic. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, I agree. I mean, that's where the limit is, limits are today, I think. Mm. Sure. The initial kind of um, neural networks that were kind of one of the milestones for AI, I think it was developed in the 60s or something. But um, I mean, those are images or replications of, of the synapses in the brain. So I think the, the kind of first steps of, of uh, AI and the algorithms uh, are trying to mimic the human brain yeah. you know, on how they how they work and, and you know I, I know that um, during some periods of time a lot of research on how to optimize AI um, but this was a couple of years ago but then you know it was a lot about trying to understand how the human brain had evolved and you know it had some kind of um, relied on that actually evolution most likely solved this in a good way. Mm. Uh, let's try it in, in neural networks as, as well and try to kind of build the same kind of structures. Mm. You realized you have kind of some synapses that had one structure that, you know, are good on certain things and, and other structures that are good on other things. That's kind of interesting. Mm. But I, I, you, know, you know, yes, the synapses are basically just you get, give them signals and they, they do a score. And, and have an output, and, and that's basically the human brain. Mm. When you talk about this, I'm thinking about Max Tegmark's uh, Life 2.0. Have you read it? No. The book? I, yeah. I think it's called Life 2.0, when where he's talking about the um, the future of AI and the risk we he's seeing with that, right? And uh, it's quite insightful, but also a bit scary. Mm. Exactly. Um, good, good. Um, yeah, I, I, I was, you know, Jonas, you said something that I, I kind of piqued my interest. I, I, you know, how you interpret data and data quality. Mm -hmm. 
And, and yes, I guess we will see better solutions for that as well that are automated and, and that has AI support in it. But I think, you know, today, going back to a bit more stuff that are happening today, I feel like, I, I you know, in every data project I've been at, there's been such a, people are quick to, you know, pull the data and then into modeling and, and uh, without really knowing uh, some of the quality issues or how to interpret the data. I had an interesting, um, this was early in my career. We built, uh, we built a predictive model. We were supposed to build a pr predictive model, um, for, um, yeah, finding, uh, customers likely to, to leave the company and churn model. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we collected, uh, data on the customer, historic data on the customers uh, from various sources in the, in the BI tools and or in the databases. Uh, we built a, kind of a, a one big table out of that and, and start to build models, you know, finding what correlated with this flag. Um, and, you know, as a, as a natural step of doing the models, you kind of come to a, like the first thing you do is kind of what variable seems to have a lot of importance to, to see if you're about to leave the company. Typically think like you call customer service a lot, then that's a good tell, a tell sign if you're a unhappy customer and you'll leave. But we found out that, um, a field from CRM, um, that was, if it was populated or not, we had this hypothesis, uh, hypothesis that if you had an email, we were kind of interested in the email okay. aspect, um, that if you had an email with a domain for the company, we thought that you were more loyal because you had an email in that kind of service provider. Uh, so kind of leaving would most likely cre create some hassle because you will change. This was the time people had those and not only Gmails. Um, so it's, it's that old, this story. <laughs> but uh, the, so, so we were interested in the email dimension and we had pulled it into the data model. Uh, but then we found out that, you know, that it has a, had an extremely good ability to predict uh, the customers. So if, if you had, uh, if you didn't, if you had an email, you were perfectly safe, any email, almost like were, those customers were the safest customers, like we could do whatever with them, they would not live. But then it turns out like we were like, this is too good to be true, but we had a steering group and, you know, we had as, as usual tight schedules. And we had a steering group and we presented that in some kind of midpoint meeting. So it was not the final thing, but we, in the midpoint meeting, and then we came back this, this, I mean, this doesn't make sense. It's, it's too strong. Um, and then we, we kind of drilled down to it and talked to the people in the, um, managing the databases. And this was before GDPR, but we had the other kind of things, uh, that, you know, regulations on how you store data. But apparently uh, they had a logic implemented in the BI system that, you know, wiped the email or all historic emails of any customers that they would have. Uh, so they kind of wiped it. So when we pulled it out, it, you know, so they had they kind did. of deleted just, <laughs> just that field. So we had historic data on the customers, but just the contact email was deleted. So, you know, 
it, it was not only it was it it's kind of a data quality thing, but it was not like so easy to find that you know this was um biased data really it was contained from the flag of leaving uh it was really contained um contaminated i guess it's the contaminated data that's but that's it i mean it's important to find these patterns right that is actually creating the problem yeah and, and i think you know yeah that uh, you know we talk about that when we do project like you need domain knowledge you need kind of data knowledge and so on uh, but i i, I think under knowing the data we're working with what had uh, what have been done with it what's the lineage of the data and and um, you know how how has, has it been tampered with that becomes super important when we build models that actually take decisions mm-hmm. and i think here you know, it's harder to invest the time and, and effort in doing that. Right? I think that's super, super important. Oh, you, need, you probably, yeah, you need that, all that kind of competence, right? In the industry, the domain, understanding the data, but you also need a lot of common sense, right? And yes. Of more common sense, yeah, that yeah. it's too good to be true. Yeah. Why, why is it telling me this, right? And then you start to drill down. Um, there was, a, there was a, actually a public organization in Finland a couple of years ago, we actually put uh, an AI solution as part of the board. Mm-hmm. Because they thought, you know, we need to make more insightful decisions. Mm. In order to make these insightful decisions, we should have an AI solution that is actually giving us instant answers so we can make these decisions. It was not a formal board member because you cannot have something non-biological as a board member because of all the responsibilities you have in a board. But it was actually part of every board meeting to actually inform the leadership about you know, difficult questions they try to solve mm. to run the business. Do you think this would be a good idea for more companies? Exactly. Where you have maybe a board composed of different people, right? Yeah. From different backgrounds, but may not be on top of the latest technology and all the information they need to take care of. Because that's a place where you need a lot of information because you make the decisions that will impact the whole company, right? And maybe the future. It's an interesting thought, I think, because, I mean, that type of AI could probably analyze all the news, something that happens to uh, competitors or equally similar companies or or something like that, and and could adjust or, or suggest some decisions based on that also, which you probably couldn't as a board member. So summarizing and collecting a lot of information could be a part of that and, and making sure that there's possibility to take a decision from, uh, from that. But wouldn't, you know, when we look at the board today, you have kind of different responsibilities mm-hmm. and backgrounds or, um, or if you look at the sea level, like uh, maybe that's even more also applicable, you know, could you have a, yeah. Um, uh, support of an AI in your C-suite. But I guess the first step would be to have some AI that's, you know, really good at the supply chain of the company or the operations of the company or the marketing of the companies. And do do you have kind of more focused AIs uh, that support the CMO have their kind of uh, marketing focused uh, uh, on the C suite, instead of having it on the board, it's more kind of different topics every meeting, right? You need yeah. to understand them, mm-hmm. so it's more tricky. But uh, I agree. 
on the C-suite as well. But yeah, that, and that, my point is a way, bit, it's so wide, like, yeah. Yeah, uh, and maybe it's more getting used to, but, you know, it feels like uh, um, more niched uh, competences are, are a bit more, uh, yeah, things that you could see coming sooner. Mm. That actually you have someone that actually tells, you know, what the perfect breakdown of, of this area or, mm. you know, this is the competition on the market for you guys. Uh, I know because I've collected all the data on this. Boom. But and some things you can never predict, right? Like uh, I think it was uh, a big Swedish company in Insjön who mm. know, had most of the, a lot of their uh, goods coming from Wuhan. Perfect place. Yeah. Perfect place. <laughs> and uh, of course, in the beginning of the pandemic, before the pandemic was declared a pandemic and before it became a problem, the debate was still on. Is it going to be a problem for us or not? All the production stopped mm-hmm. of the supply chain, right? And you can never predict this kind of, maybe you can, I don't know. Now you can. You can probably it's predict scenarios. it earlier. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're I mean, informed about uh, exactly. what is the... Uh, most kind of critical area in our business. Mm. If something happens in this place, you know, yeah. what will happen? Scenario, scenario, scenario. <gasps> I don't know. But I think what we're talking about now, maybe it, there's a way to kind of s- structure it a little bit. And and um, and um, there's this term decision intelligence, which is basically when you apply analytics and artificial intelligence in decision making. And maybe there are various degrees of how much are we letting the technology make decisions in our business? So, for example, in the individual functions, maybe there are certain things, there are processes where we want to achieve full automation based on uh, intelligent insights. Whereas in the C-suite or at the board level, they just want insights, Mm. but they want to make the decisions. So there's this degree as well of how are we how are we combining artificial intelligence machine learning with automation as well and that i think has different applicabilities across hierarchies in an organization absolutely and the combination of all this i guess in the mm. in the end could be this board member but before that uh, individual applications or insights from mm. Specific areas is probably good, good way forward. Yeah, all levels, different purposes, mm. different types of AI. Talking about um, AI in sports, I, I just need to <laughs> touch that subject. I was awesome. so impressed. My my daughter was in Gota Cup, you know, yeah. the uh, super mm-hmm. big uh, competition. I think the world biggest football competition. Yeah. Yes. Uh, this summer, and I couldn't be there, but I really want to follow you know, the games. And they are playing like in a super big area. There are like 10 different football courts. And um, there is this AI camera. Yeah. You've seen that? Yeah. Trained on data, understanding where the ball is, Mm. zooming in, zooming out. Of course, not commenting anything, Mm. but really following the game. And I was so impressed by, because of the surrounding, right? A Mm. lot of, you know, 10 different football courts playing at the same time. And the... uh, AI camera can just focus on the game where my daughter was playing mm. and zoom in, zoom out. This was really like, you don't need a cameraman or a mm. camera woman to do mm. that. It's really so impressive. Good, right? Uh, it's really cool. I haven't seen that, but, uh, yeah, 
That's no. also for the good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I th- I think um that's interesting to compare kind of its you know the the maturity of the analytics and done in sports are very much uh, kind of different between different sports um and and um, I think especially in the US they have a history of being super data driven in all all the sports and have had you know chief analytics officers in most kind of NFL game uh, NFL teams and uh, NBA teams and this and is since the money ball right <laughs> the money exactly ball. there are even movies about it exactly no but um I think it's like soccer has been uh, way behind uh of the American sports but it's catching up not so much in Sweden I would say I mean, too small league but you're actually starting to uh um sorry to see um really uh, some interesting analysis and it's more than just ai i mean it's part of you know being able to sensoric stuff and and you know being able to track people and so on but it but i i kind of enjoy uh, really the, the ability to to make um the somewhat complex kind of it's 22 people for 90 minutes passing a ball and then kind of boiling that down to mm. statistics that are meaningful and actually insightful as well or super interesting that's that's really a technique yeah. but also about how you make decisions exactly. while in exactly. for example a game mm. with um so a lot i know now that a lot of um like football players, they have um, sensors sen- sensors on yeah. them. And they are track. They can actually track based on if you've had an injury and uh, but you're still playing. You now you don't just say, Oh, you you'll play forty five minutes and that will will change. Now you say you get five max like five um max uh, runs. Max runs where you mm-hmm. you you enter your maximum pace and then we change you. And that can happen in twenty minutes or in five minutes or mm-hmm. in seventy uh, five. And um, that's cool. They d- then track that with uh, with data, and I think uh, that's that's extremely interesting. But also analysis uh, on where people move, mm. I guess, in real time during a match mm. would be really cool. Yeah, because then you can see where are the rooms and where are people moving. Um, I, I think that's, I mean, a big development going forward mm. if it's not already there. And can you predict injuries? You know, that's what you're talking yeah. about, right? I think so. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's definitely. Uh, a really good use case mm-hmm. and that's ai for good mm-hmm. i mean it's mm-hmm. about uh, people and their their physical ability so and also what, when you want to buy a player yeah <laughs> you need to look <laughs> at you know how does mm-hmm. that play look like actually yeah. if you look at every joint every you know and how is that playing player running will he be injured or she yeah maybe mm-hmm. definitely so the price will be dependent on it yeah What do you think about the insurance? Exactly. Should we uh, have insurances uh, based on know, based on how we are behaving? Mm. I mean, obviously, that would be combining the risk, predicting the persons we actually are. Are we careful? Not careful. I mean, uh, it's obviously good for the insurance companies. I'm not sure if it's good for us. Uh, but I think we will come to that part where, or where it's it's common to have an individual insurance based on your 
either physical abilities or or how driving style. Mm. Yeah, driving style or how. But isn't that good for the society in a way? I mean, you want to have people who are not crashing the car every second time, yeah. every, every second time they drive, or or not doing anything that is uh, hurting someone else or hurting yourself, right? So saving money for the uh, for the healthcare, saving money for uh, everybody, right? Yeah. So you create a behavior based on the premium you pay. Yeah. No? I think you're into like integrity questions about how do you feel free or not free. Yeah. Um, and, and you're getting into the individual freedom. But I think, I mean, we'll come to that the point where we, we will use data in that way. Absolutely. We and already are. Yeah, exactly. We already are. So um, it's more a question on how we adapt. And I think, as you said, it's good for society, mm. for sure. The question is if it actually will lead to good things in the society. Yeah. I'm not sure. And where do you draw the line? Or, or if exactly. you're very rich, you may not care yeah. <laughs> to exactly. pay a high premium. Exactly. It's Definitely. worth it. Uh, yeah. But I, f- I feel like... Um, no, I, I agree with but everything that's been said. and But still, there's um, I think there's the essential question is, where do you draw the line? And uh, I think once you enter this way of, of operating and thinking, I think that line is constantly going to be pushed. And um, I mean, we have a really big country where this we're seeing the extreme of this, mm-hmm. where the use of data and tracking individuals' behaviors are essentially impacting your your everyday life in in the highest regard um so uh, so i'm i'm a bit hesitant but but, but, uh, but could you explain that what do you mean with the highest regard um so i'm at china no oh. <laughs> um yeah where uh, basically the oh, you have no zero privacy mm. tracking all elements mm. of your private life mm. and your your life is extremely impacted by that it's a surveillance state and uh, not saying that the insurance companies um, here in the Nordics will, will ever reach that point. But I'm saying that I think this question of where do we draw the line for privacy? I think, I think that's a, a, a limit that can be pushed, a boundary that can be pushed once we get used to certain things. But it's also a matter of what culture you are. I mean, we, we are quite normally, we, we are comparing the culture we have in the Nordics and Sweden mm. with the culture uh, we have in a country like China. And we say this is, you know, we could never imagine these kind of things yeah. here in Sweden because it will look controlling Big Brother and all of that. But I think it's very hard to actually be, if you are grown up in a different culture, mm. you may you may accept it like it's perfect. It will create a good society. Mm. So it's very easy to say it's wrong, right? But it's not that easy, actually, if you look at the way the society yep. is working. And and you're onto something here and, and uh, looking at that same scenario from a business point of view, something that I think a lot of companies can become much better at when we talk about these ethical issues is actually consulting their stakeholders, consulting their end users. Like what, yeah. what's privacy to you and what's privacy to you? And um, that's something that historically some industries have been really good at when it comes to, for example, human rights types of issues. So telecom, even healthcare, they're really good at that, consulting mm-hmm. their stakeholders and getting an understanding of, of how they feel that they're impacted. And um, I think in these types of questions, that's um, one way forward as well. Mm. 
Yeah, when it comes, to, I guess you know what we've seen it today in your company, and you can you know sign up for having a sensor in your car to get the slightly less insurance. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, premium. 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 I, I guess you know it doesn't kind of scale that big because people are not that passionate or don't think the car insurance premium is that big of a deal. I guess, mm. but. It, But, you know, in the same way, um, in order to give up on your integrity, I guess the payback has to be better. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I guess an option is still, though, I mean, the way they have done it, it's kind of free for people to sign up, right? It doesn't, you know, they don't say that we need to have this on all our customers. Yes. But then, you know, it's only the very, you can, you know, question, does it have a positive effect on society? Because it's who, who's signing up for that? It's mm-hmm. only the people that have a very secure driving style or are very confident in knowing that they are uh, very... Um, they can save on that. Yeah, they can save on it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what's the benefit for society? Mm-hmm. What you said, mm-hmm. going back to like, they are already yeah. good car drivers. And if you have the opt-in kind of setup that you, some people use it and some people don't. Mm-hmm. You have a natural way of filtering. <laughs> no, but I think, I mean, if you look at the technology and AI and data, we are inevitably going in a direction, right, that is creating better business for this example, like insurance companies. Mm. They will benefit from it. Some safe drivers will benefit from it, right? But it, the technology is driving things until it might become a problem. And then it becomes regulated. Mm. So I think we cannot just stop it. We can have a lot of opinions about if it's right or wrong, but we cannot stop it. Technology is driving, actually, Mm. the evolutions until we see the problem comes. Then we try to fix it. But, you know, behavior is behavior. People are people. It will continue until regulation comes in. Mm. I think this is, we will see, it's just the beginning of what we see now. I think it will continue. I, I just wanted to bring up one topic. Time flies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have a big uh, kind of table of good things in front of us. We just are taking a little bit of it. So we we have work to do. But we, I would like to talk about a, a topic uh, that I've been thinking about a lot. AI and democracy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Will AI be a threat? And I'm thinking about, uh, you know, images, um, how we use AI to influence in the wrong way you can fix the voice you can fix the picture you can do anything you cannot detect the difference right uh, in order to influence the way you want it either by purpose if you are you know representing a party or if you're representing a foreign country you may do it for a different purpose but do you think this is it's a reality exactly super scary But it will be, will it be the end of democracy? I think, first of all, what I'm waiting on is, um, um, you know, it's like a counter strike of um, these deep fakes that mm. you get better ways to see what's fake or not. Mm. Um, so, and, and that every kind of social media or media outlet also have that in the kind of... Like a pie chart. <laughs> not the pie chart, yeah. How much fake is it? <laughs> Big pie chart, small pie chart. Well, no, but, but, but just, you know, there's, so that 
as, as soon as something kind of pops up on social media, that everybody have that kind of instinct that let's check the <laughs> fake uh, engine here, mm-hmm. um, or, or that is built in in, in uh, Facebook and, and Twitter and, and Instagram that mm-hmm. you know the, this is uh, <clears throat> has a, it's fake like that you have just as efficient um, AIs that predict that. It, it is countermeasure, countermeasures. Yeah, that's the first thing I would say. But yeah, but it's yeah. Second, I'm thinking second, about Wikipedia for like uh, 10 years ago. Wiki was kind of the the go-to source for for facts because mm. there was so many people correcting things that were wrong. Mm-hmm. So you could basically trust quite a lot of that information, and, and that's what we're we're lacking mm. in in a lot of the information on the internet today. Mm. That type of source. But uh, but I also I, I I totally agree with what you've said. And to add to that, I think it's also about um, I think it's about understanding that this is a reality that we live in, and also from from like the public organizations that we have that are meant to to uh, kind of manage these questions, and, and they are. This is something that 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 we know is happening. And that's something that we then need to take the right precautions. So we need to to be uh, setting up the right structure so that we're actually combating these um, these issues. But there are new agencies being yes. uh, developed exactly. to actually do the countermeasures, making it easy for people to detect and also warning mm-hmm. for this is not this is fake, right? Yes. This is not fake. Mm. Um, I just have the feeling that they will always be behind. Yeah. So yeah. I think the only thing to the only way to to actually get on top of the problem will be to educate citizens. Mm. Yeah. Take the yeah, but I think bring it, the responsibility yeah. to the to the source. Yeah, yeah but we, so Target look, uh, such a big topic to bring up this last five minutes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, uh, no, but I I love it. I love it. But but um, you know we've been in a age of time where we've had more and more, you know, we talked about the phone before, but you know, more and more high definition, definition cameras available, you know, to, you know, collect and, and record whatever is happening. So we've kind of been in this wave of just increasing more and more things that are happening around us and not a single moment are missed. So we've had that kind of luxury time of, of you know, seeing all the good stuff happening, right? Or bad things being said, or you know, uh, everywhere, uh, anything that has happened has mm. been caught on on camera. But now we're kind of going into new age where we we don't rely on it, where we think that uh, we we don't. We, as you say, we need to educate. Uh, or we, I mean, the the uh, total uh, population on the earth need to have a shift in the mindset, knowing that yeah, we can't trust. Uh, I guess we know that with images already mm. that's been around for 20 30 years that we don't trust images in the same way um now it's the same thing with, with videos and voice of course mm. um, and uh, that's also the mindset we need to kind of adapt and, and actually go back to the source of the material is this trustworthy and so on mm. so that's a responsibility of the parents <laughs> critical thinking, critical <laughs> thinking. <laughs> don't take everything for yeah for granted no, but it's hard, like, because, uh, I mean, especially, I think we, the older generation is going to be having a harder time because we like, what do you mean? It's a video and it's mm. audio. I hear it's Barack Obama saying this, mm. like, it's not. 
Yeah. Good, good. Um, any last topic you would like to bring up that uh, we didn't discuss? Maybe not a topic, but maybe a final remark. Yes. Um, I think um, I think we've been talking about a lot of um, ways that data and AI can have positive impacts on our society and and um, but also that you need to consider the, the risks and the potential negative implications. But I just want to stress that I think there's a risk of not using it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So um, by by not making informed decisions um, and not looking at the data. I think that's potentially an, I wouldn't say a, a larger risk um, because I don't want to compare it, but I think that's definitely something that we we, we should avoid. So um, with that, I'm <laughs> leaving it good, to Jonas. <laughs> no, so, so my final remark would be like, I, I, I love the, the, the things that you can do with a large amounts of data and, yeah. and the possibilities you can see, just connecting data points in different ways. I think that's the possibility. And of course we should make use of it. So mm. I, I agree with you, Andrea, and, but I, I just see the possibilities within the data. And that's, that's my, my final remark. Oh, wow. Yeah, no, but I'm uh, super interesting discussion. Um, it's been, um, Kind of a roller coaster and topics here. Uh, <laughs> been fun. I don't have a kind of final conclusion for me ready here, Per. What do you say? No pie. No, I, I thank you very much for uh, for having good uh, reflections on uh, the roller coaster of di different type of topics, yeah. low, uh, high and low. I I uh, I think we we can we can talk about AI you know, not using it or using it, but we will use it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody, it's, it's, it's like um, a bug, right? It's here, it will stay, it will evolve. We just need to embrace it. And we need to be very critical around, it's like um, the big car manufacturer in the US said, who's doing a lot of electric cars. It's the most dangerous weapon in the wrong hand, but it's also something that can solve a lot of our problems. And uh, if we have a lot of problems on this planet, right, then I think AI can solve them. Uh, but it's like everything. If you have a non-bio solution, the problem will accelerate uh, so much faster if you cannot create a mm. good bio solution instead. Mm. So AI is, is uh, in the wrong hands, in the wrong use, um, also dangerous. But I think it's, it's great. It will make work much more happier. And I think it will make our lives better. And if... Um, if everything goes well, we can also get the salary from the from the common by having AI doing all the jobs. <laughs> <laughs> so that would be fantastic. Mining bitcoins. <laughs> Mining bitcoins. <laughs> That's the future. Energy requirement. <laughs> so I think with that said, I, I think we had a, a good discussion. Thank you very much. And thank you, Goran, for hosting us.